Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Lay Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. When I was a graduate student just beginning my career studying the psychology of romantic relationships, I remember learning about something called the cohabitation effect in several of my courses. Social scientists coined this term to describe the increased risk of divorce that seems to accompany living together before marriage. At the time, several studies had been published in major journals supporting this idea, and the broad consensus in the field seemed to be that if you move in with your partner before you get married, this substantially elevates the risk that partners who eventually go on to marry won't stay married. I always found this interesting because it runs contrary to conventional wisdom. Public opinion polls find that the vast majority of American adults today are accepting of cohabitation outside of marriage, and most of them think it should actually increase the odds of marital success because it provides an important compatibility test before tying the knot. So is living together before marriage a good idea or a bad idea? That's what we're going to be exploring today. My guest is an expert on this topic and has studied it extensively, so we're going to get an inside look at what the research actually says. We're also going to address common questions about cohabitation, including when it's the right time to move in together. I am joined by Dr. Arielle Cooperberg, an associate professor of sociology and women's, gender, and sexuality studies at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro. She is also chair of the Council on Contemporary Families, a nonpartisan organization aimed at connecting scientific research on American families to a popular audience. Her research examines contemporary families and young adulthood, with a focus on relationship formation and dissolution, gender and economic inequality, and social change in the late 20th and early 21st century. I'm really looking forward to this conversation and settling the popular debate about how cohabitation affects divorce. And we're going to jump in right after the break. If you want to increase your sexual stamina, there's a solution, and it's called Promescent. Promescent's delay spray has been clinically shown to help men last longer in bed. It has thousands of five-star reviews and is physician-recommended. Promescent offers a 60-day money-back guarantee, free shipping on orders over $10, and discreet packaging to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place an order at promescent.com. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T dot com. The Modern Sex Therapy Institutes offers a PhD program in clinical sexology, as well as multiple certification programs in sex therapy and sex education for mental health and medical professionals. You can attend from anywhere in the world and learn from experts on sex and relationships. For more information on their programs and offerings, visit ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. That's ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. Hi, Arielle, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks so much for joining me. I've been following your work for a very long time, and I've covered it extensively in my courses and books. So I'm really excited to have the opportunity to speak with you. But before we dive into the main topic of the day, let me ask you how you got into studying romantic relationships in the first place. So as a sociologist, there are, of course, a ton of different things you could study, but why relationships? I started off by studying gender and work, actually. So the first things I studied was inequality in pay. And that kind of led me to work on housework and how that led to gender inequality in pay. And that led me to work on cohabitation and housework, which led me to work on romantic relationships. So it was kind of a natural outcropping of each project leading to 
something else. So this research on cohabitation was my dissertation originally when I was a grad student. And I handed in my proposal about two weeks after I moved in with my now spouse. So I think I had a personal interest as I was starting to consider living with them before marriage, which we did. I'm the kind of person I think who is going to go and read a research paper about whether that increases your risk of divorce before I'm going (laughs) to move in with someone. So I started reading that work and I was working on my grad school exams about families and reading some of this older work on age at marriage and divorce. And that kind of led to this project. So you have both personal experience and academic experience studying cohabitation. I think I did come up with the project before we moved in together, but it was something I had been considering at the time. So I think it kind of increased my interest in the topic. I don't want to say I only study things that affect me personally, but if you're studying relationships and families, a lot of the stuff you study ends up being something that has affected you personally, I think. It's so true. As a sex and relationship researcher, I don't let my personal life dictate the research questions that I ask, but sometimes I do learn things that benefit me through the course of my work. So thank you for sharing that. And let's talk about living together before marriage. So before we get into the link between cohabitation and divorce, let's step back and just talk more broadly about how common cohabitation is and how it has changed over time. And for purposes of clarity for my listeners, when we say cohabitation in this show, we're talking about the act of living with a partner and being unmarried. So, Ariel, how many people today are cohabiting, and how has this trend changed over time? Yeah, it kind of depends on how you're measuring it. If you're looking at, like, how many people right now are cohabiting at this moment, it's not a very high number because it tends to be a pretty temporary life stage that people, you know, cohabit for a few years and they either move on to marriage or they break up. But in terms of first marriages and whether people lived together before they got married, the most recent numbers, I think it was around 72 or 73% of first marriages now start with the couple living together before marriage. And so that's a pretty sizable increase from what it used to be, I'm guessing, where now you have about three quarters of people doing it. So I, I assume that that's been a pretty dramatic rise in a pretty short period of time. I had a paper a few years ago looking at the history of premarital cohabitation over time, and I went back to the 1940s. Back then, it was less than 2%. By the 1960s, it was about 11%. And then we saw a huge increase in the 1970s and the 1980s. I mean, a lot of things was happening during that time. There was the sexual revolution, which changed kind of social ideas about premarital sex and whether it was acceptable, birth control became widely available. So living together and having a sexual relationship didn't have as much risk in terms of having an unplanned pregnancy as it used to. Uh, Abortion was legalized, which was also related to kind of control over pregnancy. So there were all those factors. There was kind of social factors, cultural changes. And then in the late 60s, it kind of became a trend among celebrities And among the hippies of the time, right, one of the parts of that was free love. And there was a couple that like, they had like a summer of love, right, at Haight-Ashbury. And there was a couple that went there for the summer and then moved back to New York and moved in with each other. 
And the New York Times ended up writing a story about them. And they were like, this new arrangement that the young people are doing, right? Living together, it's crazy. They're not married. And it became a national scandal. And it's, it was called like the Leclerc Affair because her name was Linda Leclerc. So this became a big national scandal, but it also became big national news. And I think it kind of, a lot of people were like, hey, you could live together and not be married. Like, I never considered that before, right? Mm -hmm. And the timing was kind of perfect in terms of other social norms about sexuality that were changing. So that really set things off. And then as it became more widespread and more socially acceptable, the financial aspect also came in where couples were taking longer and longer to establish themselves to get to the point where they felt financially stable enough to get married. So now that premarital cohabitation was more socially acceptable, they would live together for my research shows for longer and longer periods of time before getting married while they saved up money, paid down debt. That's another thing I study now is student loan debt and how it affects families, right? So they pay down debt, they save up to be able to have a nice wedding and it takes longer to get to that point. Yeah. And weddings are expensive <laughs> and they've only become more expensive over time. So it makes sense that for a lot of people, they would need to save up for a while if they decided they wanted to get married and have this wedding of, of their dreams. But I think you raise a lot of really important points about how I think today a lot of us just sort of take cohabitation for granted. And it's sort of considered a, a typical part of the relationship development and formation process, because for most people, it is a stepping stone to marriage, or for some people, it's an end state in and of itself. And for some people, it leads to dissolution of the relationship because it wasn't the right relationship for the partners. So it can go off in a lot of different directions. But it did used to be this very stigmatizing state to live with a partner in the state of being unmarried. And it was considered really socially taboo. But now you have people of all different ages and different demographic backgrounds doing it. And so it's a much different body of people who are cohabiting today than they were in the past, and also a much bigger body. Now, as I mentioned at the top of the show, there's this longstanding body of research on the so-called cohabitation effect. So let's start with the history of this effect prior to your work. So how did early researchers determine that cohabitation and divorce were connected? And what was the proposed explanation for this? So why did social scientists used to think that living together before marriage elevated your risk of later divorce? So research would basically compare couples that got married in a given year, and they would look at couples that lived together before marriage and couples that didn't live together before marriage, and they would go year by year after marriage and see how many of each type of couple was divorced for each year, and then kind of you like average those numbers over time, and you look at what is that gap between those two different groups over the duration of a marriage. And previous research has found some explanations for it. So it was partially explained by economic factors. So couples that are less financially prepared to get married, right? As I said, they have higher debt. And then that lower level of financial stability also affects their marriage and divorce rate. So part of it is explained by couples that have higher rates of unemployment, couples that have less education, couples that have less wealth. They're more likely to live together before marriage because they're less likely to be financially stable and feel like they're financially prepared 
to go straight into marriage. And then those same financial things that cause them to live together also later causes problems in their marriage, right? There's also been connections to religiosity. So part of it is explained by the fact that couples that live together before marriage tend to be less religious and more religious couples tend to have lower divorce rates. Part of it may be attitude differences, right? If you're more likely to break social norms and live together, maybe you're more likely to break social norms by getting divorced. So what the previous research found is that this explained part of the gap, but it didn't explain all of it. There was many theories about why that is. So one theory is that maybe cohabitation causes you to get divorced. So the theory is some couples, maybe they would have broken up if they weren't living together, but because they moved in together, then it gets kind of harder to break up. So they stay through things they would have broken up over if they hadn't been living together and then they get married, but their relationship is kind of like worse, right? There was another theory that maybe cohabitation lets you get used to the idea that you could leave the relationship if things get hard. And then you bring that kind of individualistic ethic into marriage. And then that causes you to get divorced. So those were some of the theories. And then I was pretty skeptical. So that's what led me to my (laughs) research. Part of the reason cohabitation isn't like vastly decreasing your chance of divorce is this idea that some couples who would have broken up if they hadn't lived together are now it gets harder for them to break up. And then there's kind of social pressure when you live together. Eventually, people are like, you're getting married? Been living together like two years. So wedding bells are like, what's going on there? Is like something the problem? So there's pressure on couples that are living together to get married. And I think that kind of counteracts some of the weeding out effect of living together, weeding out those bad marriages and making sure they never happen to begin with. Yeah, I think you raise an important point about the expectations that are often put on people who are cohabiting with a partner, because a lot of people look at relationships through this very heteronormative lens where it follows these certain stages of development. And previously, cohabitation was not part of that, but it was just sort of like, yeah, meet, yeah, get married. Now living together in between is an intermediate step, but, and then there's kids and it just sort of follows this sort of linear progression. But we know that relationships can go off in all these different directions, but a lot of people still feel that pressure to conform to the certain relationship script. And I think people, a lot of times unknowingly or unintentionally put that pressure on other people to conform to these relationship scripts. And so you're right, it can push some people into getting married who might not have otherwise done it because they need to feel like they're they're fitting this certain social mold for what the ideal relationship looks like. So it sounds like people had a lot of different ideas for why cohabitation might be linked to divorce. Some of them were just things that are confounded with cohabitation, such as economic instability, but also some things specific or unique to cohabitation itself. Now, your work has challenged the idea of the cohabitation effect. And one of the things you've pointed out is that there have been some methodological flaws in previous studies. So for example, most of them lump all of the cohabitors together, which neglects the fact that some people are uncertain about whether they wanna get married, some don't wanna get married at all, and some have definitive marriage plans. 
And there's also all kinds of reasons why people might cohabitate. Some people do it precisely because it is that trial run for marriage. For others, it's a complete alternative to marriage. They have no plans to ever do it because marriage isn't something they want. And then, as you mentioned, some people do it for financial reasons. Or maybe their relationship plans have changed or accelerated due to something like a global pandemic, right? We know that a lot of people moved in at the start of the pandemic because they were afraid they weren't going to be able to see each other. And so some people sort of rushed into that much sooner than they otherwise would have done it. But what all of this tells us is that treating cohabitors as this monolithic group is problematic because there are so many different subgroups within this bigger category. And then... There's also the fact that people who skip cohabitation and go directly into marriage are probably pretty different. As you mentioned, they might differ in, say, religiosity or some of these other factors, which makes you wonder whether comparing cohabitors to direct marriers is even a really good comparison. So I have an article that looks at this where a lot of previous research, as you said, compared all couples that were living together to all couples that were married and that's a very important comparison, too, but it doesn't tell you the extent to which marriage actually changes behavior. So, for instance, women were more likely to specialize in housework and less likely to specialize in paid work after they got married. So there was some gender specialization. People were more likely to have children after they got married. People were more likely to buy a home together after they got married. I think you raised a lot of important points there about, for example, how the introduction of children into a marriage is going to change that dynamic. It's going to change behavior. And we know a lot of people stay in long-term marriages that are profoundly dissatisfying for the sake of the kids, right? And so it gets back to a broader point that I've talked about on the show before, which is that a lot of social scientists have used relationship length as sort of the key indicator of the quality of the relationship and just sort of assume that the longer a relationship is, the better. And the fact that divorce hasn't occurred is seen as a positive outcome. But if you're staying in a relationship that's long-term and you're not divorced, but you're really unhappy, is that really a good relationship? So I, I think it gets to some important questions about for social scientists studying relationships, what are the right outcomes and how do we measure relationship quality and how much does length really matter anyway when we're talking about the quality of a relationship? Do you have any thoughts on that? I was just thinking about the research on children and how economists find that having children increases women's thoughts of divorce, but decreases the chance that she gets divorced, right? Mm -hmm. So I think when you're looking at marriage, duration is one measure that is, it is an important measure, but there's also happiness, satisfaction within the, the marriage, abusive, horrible outcomes within the marriage. So there's all sorts of other things that really tell you more about a quality of relationship versus how long it lasts, right? Absolutely. Now, your research and the work of other recent scientists suggests that the cohabitation effect is declining, and it's possible it never existed at all because early studies didn't take into account things like age. So people who cohabitate tend to be younger. So maybe it's more about people getting into relationships at a young age when you don't really know what you want, or you're still in the process of maturing. And maybe that's what is linked to the heightened risk of divorce. So can you share your thoughts on this? Do you think the cohabitation habitation effect was ever really even a thing? And if so, is it now mostly a thing of the past, given that cohabitation is this new stage in relationship development for most people? This goes 
back to my research we were talking about earlier, where there's this this unexplained gap between cohabitors and couples that don't cohabit before marriage and divorce rate. And as you say, what I found was if you account for the younger age at which couples that live together are moving in with each other and kind of settling down with that same partner, that really explains the entire cohabitation gap going back to at least the 1980s. And I mean, the reason that is, is because couples that settle down younger tend to be less prepared for marriage, but also the roles of marriage, which is like sharing a household together and sharing finances and learning to live with each other, right? So a lot of that, those roles happen earlier now if you're cohabiting with each other. And there's also the issue of like who you pick as a partner. So couples that tend to get married younger tend to divorce at a higher rate. And one reason is that they pick less compatible partners for several reasons. One is when you're younger, you have less relationship experience and life experience. So you may not be looking for kind of like the right things or you may think you want something, but then you have a relationship, you know, with someone who has that thing and you're like, actually, that's not really important. Part of it may just be like maturity, right? Couples that are marrying at 18, maybe they formed that relationship when they were like 14 and they're like, we've been dating four years, time to get married. But the person you really, you know, think back to the, <laughs> yeah, think back to the person you were dating when you were like 14 or 15 and how compatible they would be with, with your life right now, right? And a major factor is that Young adults changed a lot in their kind of college age years, like the traditional age at which young adults go to college. A lot of people change career ambitions. They change ideas about what they want to do with their life, where they want to live. Or it may not even be changing ideas. It may be more like settling on ideas. And and a lot of people end up moving, especially college educated people end up moving after college. Now that more and more couples have two people who have careers that leads to more of these like work family conflicts right where you're like okay I graduated college and I have this really good job opportunity in San Francisco and my spouse has this really good job opportunity in New York and either we take it and then maybe that puts strain on relationship or one person gives up their opportunity and that puts strain on the relationship so all those changes we go through in young adulthood means you may grow in different ways from your partner. So what I found is if you account for those age differences, like the cohabitation gap disappears, but only going back till around the 80s. And I published on cohabitation over time. And one thing I looked at was I pushed back that analysis to the 60s. And what I found was in the 60s and early 70s, there was a cohabitation effect on divorce, even after you take into account these age differences. And then basically 80s, 90s, 2000s, there's kind of an even chance. And now if you account for the age at which they move in together, cohabitation actually has a negative effect on divorce. So what I think is happening there is it's become more socially acceptable over time. So in the 1960s, if you're moving in together, maybe you your family scorns you and does not support you in that relationship anymore. Maybe you weren't close with your family to begin with. So that's why. So people in the 60s who were cohabiting were this very unusual group who were breaking very strong social norms to live together. And then if you're already breaking these social norms and if you've lost family support or never had it to begin with, couples then also 
I think a lot of hippies in the 60s, I wasn't alive then, but my, from what I hear about the 60s, uh, a lot of people who are in that community were people who didn't have family support to begin with, right? And they kind of joined this hippie supportive community. So if you're part of that community that has less family support to begin with, then when you're getting married, you don't have that family support to help you sustain the marriage. Couples often get a lot of support from their family to help them go through tough financial times or emotional support when they're having relationship problems or childcare. So there's all ways in which family support kind of helps you with your marriage. Now, it's actually unusual not to live together before marriage. Couples who are marrying today, like their parents, probably more than half of them live together before marriage. So I remember in the 80s, my babysitter actually moved in with her boyfriend and it was like the scandal of the town, right? Mm-hmm. But that's that would be kind of unheard of now, right? So people don't lose their family support. It's kind of an expected part of young adulthood. And now cohabitation is doing what people are hoping it does, I think, which is actually weeding out the bad marriages before they happen, right? Where you have kind of like a test drive and you see like, okay, this is not going to work out. So I'm going to back away before I sign that legal paperwork. So it sounds like the nature of the cohabitation effect has changed a lot over time. So in the 60s, it was linked to increased risk of divorce, but that was probably tied to the fact that it was such a taboo thing at that period of time. And then things started to change in the 80s and 90s, got a little bit more socially acceptable. And then now today, it really is serving more as that compatibility test. And as you mentioned, it can actually increase the likelihood that the relationship works out because people are using it for its intended purpose if marriage is their ultimate goal. So thanks for sharing all of that about the evolution of cohabitation and the cohabitation effect. We have more to discuss, including when it's the right time to move in together and things to think about if you're planning to cohabitate. But first, a quick break for a word from our sponsors. It's time to get off the couch and back into the bedroom. Be ready whenever the opportunity arises with Blue Chew. Blue Chew is an online service that delivers the same active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis in chewable tablets at a fraction of the cost. Just sign up at bluechew.com, consult with one of their licensed medical providers, and once approved, you'll receive your prescription in days, discreetly shipped right to your door. There's nothing sexier than confidence, and Blue Chew can give you confidence where it counts. So if you could benefit from extra confidence when it's time to perform, Blue Chew can help. As a special deal for listeners, you can try Blue Chew free when you use promo code PSYCH, P-S-Y-C-H, at checkout. Just pay $5 shipping. That's bluechew.com, promo code PSYCH, to receive your first month free. Visit bluechew.com for more details and important safety information. And thanks to Blue Chew for sponsoring this podcast. And we're back. Now, Ariel, a common question I get is, when is it the right time to move in together? So as someone who studies cohabitation, I'm curious to get your take on this. And I know there's not a one-size-fits-all answer that's like, okay, here is the exact right time and circumstances to move in with your partner because every person and situation is different. But what do you think? Should people wait at least a certain amount of time before they do this? Or are there any signs they can look for to suggest that it might be the right time to move in? So I think some of it has to do with kind of where you are in your life at that time. Well, and what do you want to get out of the cohabitation also? If you are in college and thinking this may be the one and you may settle down with that person for the long term, 
I would maybe wait a couple of years until you're closer to graduation and what both of you are doing after graduation before making a step like that. What I find in my research is the biggest drop in divorce happens around age 23. So couples who move in 23 or older. And I don't think that's like a magical age. What I think is happening there is that's like a year after most people graduate college. So that's the point at which more people are settled in where are they going to live after grad? Are they going to go to grad school? Are they going to live in the same place? Are they going to find a job there? Are they going to have to move across the country? And I think a lot changes in those couple of years. So I wouldn't put too much expectations on the cohabitation that's happening before that. I would think if you're about to move off to grad school in six months or next year, maybe that's not the time to move in, right? Or you're about to graduate. Or But moving in after graduation, I think, is a great time if you both have jobs in the same area. In terms of how long the relationship is, I think Research has shown couples that move in very quickly tend to break up more, partially again, because couples that move in very quickly tend to have a lot of financial problems. And that's one of the reasons they moved in very quickly, because it's people who like, they're like, my lease is up, I can't pay my rent if I have to get a roommate. So let's move in together. Let's just do it. So I would wait like at least a few months. I don't know. how how personal to be but me and my husband basically started living together pretty soon after we met but it took about a year and a half for him to officially get rid of his other apartment Mm -hmm. Uh, and that worked out for us but again I don't think a year and a half is like the perfect amount of time but I don't think that's something you want to rush into within like two or three months of meeting someone without having a backup plan for what happens if the relationship goes wrong I think you're so right that it might not be the right time to move in together if there's a lot of uncertainty in your life and or your partner's life, especially if you're not sure where you want to live, what it is that you want to do with your career, all of that. It's a very important consideration. But also, we know that in the early phases of a relationship, there's a lot of feelings of passion. And when we're in that intense state of passion, sometimes we miss out on red flags and warning signs that would suggest that maybe this isn't the right partner or right relationship, because we're just consumed with that feeling of passion. And we know that passion starts to wane somewhere between six months and two years on average. For some people, it lasts longer. And yes, you can keep passion alive if you work at it. But that initial burst of passion is something that's usually measured in a matter of months. And so I think it's also worth considering letting the passion kind of wear away a little bit to make sure that you're sure it's the right relationship for you before you make a big step like moving in together. So for partners who are on the verge of moving in together, what do you think they need to know? So based on your research or personal experience or some of both, do you have any tips for successful cohabitation when moving in with a partner for the first time? Because that can be a challenging process from managing the finances to suddenly you have to navigate issues of personal space and figure out who's responsible for what around the house. So any cohabiting tips you can share with us? I think finances is a very important thing to discuss up front. Also, things like housework and how are you going to divide up chores. I know from experience with roommates, if you just assume it's going to happen, then it turns into a game of chicken over who's going to you know, take out the garbage last or something, right? I had a roommate like that who I was eventually I was just like, I'm going on strike. He never does anything. And we had like a standoff for like a month, I think. So having these 
conversations that are practical conversations and thinking about kind of the businessy aspects of living together, right? Like, how are you going to pay for things? What feels fair to both of you? How are you going to divide up chores? I think from personal experience, I would say if someone is moving into the apartment or house of somebody who already lives there, it's probably a good idea to maybe change up the furniture and change things around so it becomes more of your place versus the one person's place. Although I could tell you, I lived in my old place. I lived there for one year, then my partner moved in, we got married a year later, we ended up living there together like four years, and he still calls it my apartment, right? (laughs) Mm Because it's always going to be my apartment. But I think one way of making people more comfortable is kind of trying to rearrange things, rearrange the living room furniture, change things up. So you're kind of making a clear delineation. And also, I think in that case, kind of letting go could be an issue, right? If you've had a lot of control over a space and how it's decorated. So realize that somebody moving into a space that you've already been in can be hard for them, right? And you want them to be able to feel that it's their home too. So give them the ability to decorate and take a hand in that redecorating too, I think, to make it more of a home. Basically anything I would say to anyone in a relationship, right? Like try to keep communication open. Don't rush into things. Don't do it because purely out of financial reasons, right? Don't only live together with someone you're not sure about living with because you're like, I can't afford it otherwise. That'll put pressure on you to move in with someone, but that shouldn't be the only reason. I mean, that's reason to live with a roommate sometimes. But uh, <laughs> I think in a romantic relationship, that's a way for a relationship to go wrong, especially if you're not yet at that point. And I think we also kind of talked about backup plan for what would happen if we decided to break up after we moved in. So because we weren't ready to get married. One of the reasons we moved in and didn't yet get married was because I had that previous roommate who was playing garbage chicken with me. And I think I was like, I'm not ready to marry someone before I see like whether they pull their weight around the house and stuff like that. So we we were like, okay, what's our backup plan? If we break up, like we had a two bedroom apartment. So you'll move into that bedroom and you're going to be the one to move out. And we're like, we're not going to jinx things, but we're going to have that little like backup plan, I think. And we also did kind of a test run. Well, we ended up doing a test run for like six months because he couldn't get out of his lease. So he still had another apartment that he technically lived in. But even before that, he came over with his cat for a week. And he was like, I'm going to stay here for the week and see how it goes and see how our cats get along. Yeah, I think think. the pets (laughs) are an important part of the conversation because I've seen this happen with friends where they're ready to move in and then their animals just don't get along. And then that becomes this big stressor within the relationship. And so having some sort of trial run, whether it's starting with a weekend and then to a week or a month or something and sort of making sure it works, all the dynamics are there between you and the pets if you have them can be a good way to go rather than just starting a new lease and everybody is just thrown into it all at once. So I think everything that you said there is great advice, whether it's a somebody you're moving in with who's a romantic partner, whether it's a friend or a roommate that you have, or even if it's a 
romantic relationship, like where you're skipping the cohabitation part and you're just going right to marriage. Like you need to have those conversations about finances and responsibilities and all of that other uncomfortable stuff that no one likes to talk about. I understand why people don't do it because it's uncomfortable. Like who's going to pay for what and how's, how's this going to work? But if you don't have those conversations, people are going to make assumptions and sometimes they're going to make bad and very wrong assumptions. And then that's where things go wrong. So I think, yes, the, the best piece of advice is have that open communication, have the uncomfortable talks up front, and that will increase the odds of things working out better. So thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Ariel. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work? You can find more information about my research at my website, or you could go to my Twitter A.T. Cooperberg, K-U-P-E-R-B-E-R-G, and it has links to my website there. And uh, I tweet about all my new articles coming out there. Great. And I'll be sure to include a link to your website in the show notes. Thank you for your time. And thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.